Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Stephen Kiley. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. I want to preach to you this morning. I, I feel like God's laid a few things on my heart. If you've got your Bibles, we're, we're going to be looking at a few verses. I want to read from James, the second chapter, verse 14 to verse 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can his faith save him? I want you to look at that again. Can your faith save you? And we know that by grace through faith are we saved. If it has no works. And that's the question that James is answering. Asking, can your faith save you? if it does not have any works. If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat well, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you faith from my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. Foolish man, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works, faith was perfected. So the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. That's in your Bible. And in the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by a different route. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. If you want to take your temperature this morning, and if you want to see that you have faith, what you need to look for is works. If you have no works, you have a dead faith. As the body without the spirit is dead, faith is dead without works. And I'm going to talk to you about something that a lot of people say that they might differ with. I'm not saved by my works. Well, and what, they, what they're really saying is, I don't have to do anything to go to heaven. I beg to differ. If you have faith, you will have works. If you have no works, I doubt whether you have faith. And this morning, what I want to talk about a little bit too is not just the prayer. I'm not talking about fasting. I'm not talking about church attendance. I'm not talking about reading your Bible. Those aren't the works that the Bible's talking about. Jesus said in Matthew, and I'll let you sit in a minute, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came. Those are works. He said, the works that I do, you shall do also. Those are the things that are going to show me whether your faith is either dead or alive. And remember, without faith, You'll never please God. 
Praise God. Lord, I pray in the next few minutes, you'd speak to my heart and speak what you want us to hear. Help me to shoot straight, Lord, and follow your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I want to go back to Genesis, the fourth chapter. This, is, this has been on my mind this week. It deals with Cain and Abel. Nice family. It was a functional family, by the way. Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. doesn't mention that they didn't get along or anything. But something happened in their relationship to God that not only caused Cain to hate his brother Abel, but it caused the complete family to become even more dysfunctional. It says that in Genesis 4, well, I'm in Exodus. I wondered why they changed it. Adam was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. Then she also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also presented an offering some of the firstborn of his flock, and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. Now, it wasn't up to these children to decide what offering they were going to bring or where they were going to bring the offering. They were instructed by their parents who were instructed by God specifically what kind of offering God required. <clears throat> but Cain, being a very conscientious guy and proud of the living that he made as a farmer, he loved his fruit, he loved his vegetables, he loved his garden. And he was very proud of the things that he was able to, to raise. And he thought to himself, why would I give God something that I haven't raised? I'm not a shepherd. Why would I go give God something that I didn't have really any investment in? I'm going to bring something that's really important to me as an offering to God. He had good intentions. He worked hard for those, those vegetables. And so, and I think God realized his intention. But it says that the Lord had regard for Abel, but he had no regard for Cain and his offering. Two things. Did you catch that? Two things that God had no regard for. One, Cain. In other words, he was not pleased with Cain. And he was not pleased with his offering. He divided the two up. It wasn't his actions. It was his spirit and his actions. Now, I, I need to understand that God, it actually says in the NIV that his countenance had fallen, that God's not pleased when I bring him something that he's not asked for. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious? And why do you look despondent? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? It wasn't that God was, did dislike Cain or liked Abel more than he liked Cain. He said, all you have to do is do right. And I'll accept you too. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And I, I'd like to just leave you with this thought. If thou dust right, wilt thou not also be accepted? If you do what God has commanded you to do, won't your countenance be lifted up? 
when you disobey God or you bring something to God that God has asked you not to. He doesn't want vegetables on his altar. He wants life. He wants blood on his altar. Your countenance will fall because you will feel the rejection of God. But when you do what God has commanded, your countenance will rise up because of his acceptance. And I dare say that in many churches, there's a lot of sad people because spiritually, they're not feeling the acceptance of God. And the reason is that they've not brought what God has asked them, a sacrifice with blood in it. I'm going to sort of switch gears a little bit, and I want to go back to an event that happened in April 14th, 1912. Let's see, is there anybody here? Let's see. No, Dave, you're a little bit younger than that. Just teasing you. Before I tell you what happened on April 14th, 1912, let me remind you that the last war that was fought on the mainland of the United States, not, I'm not talking about the Aleutian Islands out near Alaska where the Japanese or the Chinese had a battle, a slight battle, but the last war that we had on the mainland of our country was in 1865. It lasted four years. It ended in 1865, the Civil War. We have had a number of years now, over a hundred and some years without any war on our main continent. And we have forgotten the sorrow and the suffering that comes through a battle fought in our homeland. It goes back to a, something that happened in 1912 and it was called, uh, it was the Titanic. And, if you want to put up that picture of the Titanic. It was um, a real time of prosperity in around 1912. They had not had any real wars for a period of time. Uh, people were feeling very confident in, in the growth that was taking place in, in the world. And the technology had turned into almost the god of the people. They were starting to invent things that just blew their mind away. And the Titanic uh, was one of the things that they had developed that they were very proud of. The prosperity was amazing. A hundred years with no world wars. Mark Twain actually mentioned about this age that it was called the Gilded Age. And here was this monument, the Titanic, to man's ingenuity. One carpenter was said, said to have said, quote, the Titanic was the last word in luxury. It was the last word in craftsmanship. She was considered a floating palace, luxurious. There were, you know, they spared no expense in that ship. On board, there were Turkish baths. There was a swimming pool, tennis courts, gymnasiums, ballrooms, elevators. 1912. The Titanic was 882 and a half feet long and 175 feet high. Just the anchor alone, one of the anchors, weighed 15 and a half tons. She was, that, that boat, if you were to look at the length, she was constructed with 16 watertight compartments from front to back. She was built so that she could stand above water even if the first four compartments were completely flooded. She would still float. Since no one considered the unimaginable because they all felt that she was unsinkable, no one was prepared for that night 
when it hit an iceberg. You know, you know they had the Shipbuilder magazine. Back then, it's like our auto magazines today. The Shipbuilder magazine back in 1912 said, she's practically unsinkable. And I think you're going to know where I'm going in a little bit. However, as every one of us knows, at 11.40 p.m. on April 14, 1912, on a cold Sunday night in the Atlantic, 450 miles south of Cape Race, the Titanic struck a huge iceberg. That iceberg put a hole in her front compartments 300 feet long, and it flooded her first six compartments. If you remember what I just said, she could, she could float with four, but not with six flooded. So, therefore, it was a mathematical certainty that she was going to sink. At 2.20 a.m. on April 15th, the Titanic went down. Out of 2,207 people that were on board that ship, only 705 were picked up from 16 lifeboats and three collapsibles. On that night, 1,502 people who had left port just a few days earlier went to meet their maker. No one could have believed that this ship, this architectural masterpiece, could ever have met the demise that it did. I want to look at some of the, the spiritual lessons that I, we can glean from this. First of all, we need to learn to put our trust in God. You know, when some of those people boarded the Titanic, their, first, their faith and trust was in a man called Captain Smith. They were confident in the luxury and the, and the construction of something that was termed by others as unsinkable. Captain Smith had been a well, highly paid captain for White Star Lines. The crew almost worshipped him. He'd never, in all of his years, been in a shipwreck. Forty years as captain, no shipwreck. They trusted that he would be able to take care of any problem that might arise. Their confidence was completely engulfed in something built by man and in man himself. Many people in that age were, were trusting in their accomplishments, their riches, their wealth. They almost worshipped their wealth. The people that were on that boat paid a tremendous price to be there. This was a time of celebration of man's accomplishment. There wasn't anything that their money couldn't buy until that night. Instead of trusting a boat and trusting a man, they should have been trying to put their trust in God. Proverbs, the third chapter, verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. You know, when you have money in the bank, you have a tendency to put your trust in that money and in your wealth. Because you don't need to trust in God nearly as much because you can trust in your money. You begin to believe that you're independent and you are the master of your own destiny. And you even feel like you're the captain of your own fate. <laughs> I, know, I know a little bit of what I'm speaking. I, I'm thinking about retirement and some of you may have thought about it too and you're wondering... Can I make it if I were to retire? Is the money there? Is there security enough in my bank account? Is there enough money coming in that I can survive? I, don't, I have to know. And if there is, then all of a sudden I start to put my trust in what I've built up and not so much in God. But let me tell you that 
my money, my accounts, my home are like the Titanic. It can come to a quick end. Now, I'm not saying that money's bad. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. And they say, well, a person with money, that's a bad thing. No, that's not what the Bible is saying. It says the love of money. Or trying to put your security in your accomplishments or in what you've, you've been able to store away for a hard time. 1 Timothy 6.17 says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Who are we trusting? You know, it's recorded that there was one man that when the Titanic was sinking, that he went to the railing of the boat as, as it was going down and he emptied, emptied all of his, the money in his wallet into the ocean. He realized that his money was powerless to help him. You know the thing that you're trusting in tonight or this morning? If it's of the world, it's probably powerless to help you against the spiritual battle that we are about to face. Do you realize that when the stock market fell in 1929 that people jumped off bridges that were one time, at one time wealthy and secure in what they've been able to accumulate? They felt, they felt that all of the things that they'd brought together, all of the work they'd put into what they had, all was gone in a moment. And if life was that fickle, why live? I think I relate to that. That's where Jesus found me. When I realized the fickleness of the world and how things are constantly changing and that I could lose everything that I, I built up in one moment of time, could I face that or was it worth the investment? I think the Lord tries to teach us that we should not learn to trust ourselves or to trust our accomplishments or what we've built up or our money. And when we start to lean more on him, more than what we are, the better off we'll be. I want to put my anchor down in the rock, the rock of my salvation. The second thing that was amazing to me is that night that the boat went down, those employees of the Star Line, the unsung heroes that we never really even take time to think about. Imagine for just a moment that you're a crew member on that ship. It's your job to serve the needs of those passengers. It's your job to make sure that they're safe and that they're in the lifeboats. When the order's given, women and children into the lifeboats first, it's your responsibility to encourage those to get into the boats and you are not expected to get in. As you load that last lifeboat, and as you watch that last lifeboat go into the water, you realize that the only thing that's left for you is death. What would you think of this was happening to you? How would you feel that you put your life behind another. You put someone else before you, seeing, knowing that they would live, but you would die. What would you feel about those words, service and duty? How, would, how important would those be to you when your life was on the line? That night, many, many people worked hard so that other people could live. Those were works. Those are the kind of works that God cries out for the church to do. Putting others before you, esteeming others above yourself. Christianity is a ministry of service, not of religion. Jesus said, do the works that I do. What were the works that he was talking about? 
What did he come to do? What were the works of Christ that I would do? He said, these works shall you do, and greater works shall you do. In other words, greater in magnitude. What are the works that we're talking about? Is it prayer? No, that's self-maintenance. Worship, that's glorification of God, but not necessarily a work that Christ is talking about. What did Christ do on the earth to pattern, leave a pattern for us to follow? He went about doing good, healing the sick, and encouraging and preaching the gospel. Those are the works that Christ wanted us to follow. Sometimes we feel that church attendance is a work. It's not a work. Self-maintenance. I take my car to get the oil changed because I wanted to continue running. But that's, that's just for my benefit. The Bible says in Ephesians 2 and 9, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, if you're not doing what Christ is asking you to do and you're bringing something else in its place, guess what? Your countenance is going to fall because you're going to feel that God is not pleased with you. And you know what? I'm glad you do. I'm glad I do. Sometimes we say, Lord, help me. I'm so depressed. And God's saying, well, yeah, I asked you to do something, and you're bringing me something that I didn't want in place of what I've asked you to do. You should feel your countenance fall. But also, when you do what you should do, your countenance will change for the better. Example, as a, as, a, as a pastor, that week I was gone at Rochester, I had a wonderful time with my wife. We camped out. It was, we made it a wonderful time. We went, took a trip up the Mississippi. You know, I love my wife. She's cool. I love being with her. We don't always agree, but she's really cool. And But when I came home, I felt like spiritually, I didn't feel my high. I felt I had enjoyed myself. And even when I went to work on Monday, I felt, boy, I feel like I'm drained. I don't feel spiritual at all. But when I got back into my job and I started to teach and pray for people and encourage people, all of a sudden, the more I did that, the more fulfilled I felt happy. You know, you're created in such a way that when you're obeying God and functioning in the manner for which he's created you, you're going to feel good. I pulled up next to this truck the other day. It had dual exhaust on it. I, think, I don't know if it was a freight liner or what, but I wasn't paying attention. But when he started off, those pipes, oh, there's something about exhaust for a guy, they rattled off. It sounded so cool. I just wanted to stay with them for a while and because everything was working right, the engine's turning over, it's, it's pulling weight. It doesn't sound as good when it's not working. When I'm working the way that I should work, people like to see that and my countenance feels good. I have to confess, I don't know whether I'll ever get rid of the truck driver in me, ever. I told my wife we were driving home from Rochester, and I said, do you hear that, honey? Do you hear the whine of the tires on the road? Isn't that a cool sound? Here, let me run over the road strips. (laughs) But see, when you're created in a special way by God, when you're doing what you were created to do, and you're under load, when you're, you're pulling the load, you get such great satisfaction and pleasure. But when you start to put your trust in what you've done, instead of what you're doing, 
and God sees you trying to bring your own self-righteousness to church, your countenance is going to fall. You're depressed. You know what most preachers will tell you? And most people that have known God for a while, you feel down, go out and teach a Bible study. Go out, and you know, I don't want to teach a Bible study. I'll tell you what else to do. There's a lady that used to come to our church. She doesn't come here anymore, but I see her at the Regency occasionally. And when I see her, she's always cheerful. She's always working with seniors. Oh, she, I met her the other day, and she says, you know what I'm doing? I'm taking Mr. Carlson, or whatever his name is, I'm taking him out to his farm. He's no longer living here, and then we're going to go out to eat. I'm here to encourage him. And then I would see her over and over again. Her joy and purpose in life is serving someone who has a need. And she's happy. All right, let's get back to where we were. We've got to learn the value of serving other people. The third thing that we can learn from the Titanic is how to heed the warnings and be prepared to meet God. Do you know the Titanic was warned that night seven times about icebergs? That the day that it struck the iceberg, it had already been warned seven times that there were icebergs in the area. The last warning, the next to the last warning, came at 9.40 p.m. Just two hours before the boat hit the iceberg, it was warned that there were icebergs in the area. The message reads this way. Much heavy packed ice. A great number of icebergs, unquote. That was the message that the boat received. Now, the, Jack Phillips, he was the radio operator that night on the Titanic. Boy, I'd hate to be in his shoes because, because of his inaction. He bears some of the responsibility of what happened. He put the message down and he put it under a paperweight. He'd give it to the captain later. At 11.05, just 35 minutes before the collision, the radio operator on another ship called the Californian sent this message to the Titanic. Say, oh man, we are stopped and surrounded by icebergs. The Californian was 20 miles away from the Titanic when it struck. Not an insurmountable distance for it to to have been a service to those that were drowning. Say, oh man, we've stopped, we're stopped, and we're surrounded by icebergs. Phillips, the radio operator on the Titanic, wired back, shut up, shut up, I'm busy. Phillips gave the message to the captain. Phillips never gave the message to the captain. Preacher, shut up. Shut up. I'm busy. You don't understand. I don't have time right now to worry about something that's not forcibly facing me at the moment. History repeats itself. At 11.30 p.m., just 10 minutes before the collision, Evans, who was on the Californian, turned off the wireless and went to bed. The Californian was only 15 to 20 miles away. After talking to the Titanic and warning them over and over again, he finally turned off his wireless and went to bed. And after the Titanic hit the iceberg, the Californian was able to see the eight flares going up, which were signs of an emergency. They were close enough to see the flares, but they didn't realize that they were serious about it. They thought it was just a company signal or a sign of them just having a party that night. Oh, they're just partying. They saw the flares. 
they had turned off the radio. And the Californian gave a half-hearted effort to contact, to contact the Titanic, but they failed. And look at the number of deaths that resulted. You know, there's a lot of people that are laughing about religion tonight. There's a lot of people that are religious, but they're apathetic and they're lukewarm. They've been lulled to sleep in our economy and prosperity. You know, I don't think the Pope, you know, we've tried to impress him while he's here. I don't think he's impressed. I thought about it this morning. I bet you a dollar to a donut, he's not impressed at all because he's been in third world countries where he sees people starving. And he looks at the United States as prosperity and its wickedness, and he just marvels. A lot of people have the attitude that religion is just for little kids or old people. If you try to talk to them about going to church or you warn them about the things that are about to come upon the face of the earth, they act so unconcerned. Shut up, shut up. They start to make excuses. Well, you know what? I can't make it to church today because I have to let the dog out. I can't, I can't really give what God's wanting me to give at this moment because I have just too many things to do. I think of the scripture that says, surely one life, this is actually not a scripture, a song. Remember it though? Surely one life and soon it will pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. Remember that song? All the things that you've done, all the things that you built, all be forgotten. Even when you get to heaven, hopefully we'll all make it. God's never going to say, you know you did a good job on your business. Oh, you, you did a, a lot of good things. You know, you were busy doing this and that. Only what you've done for him will ever be remembered. So we can't laugh it off. The Bible says in Hebrews, the second chapter, verse 3, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? How are we going to escape the tribulations of this earth if we ignore the warnings and we lack the preparation. This country, you know, it stood, it's been a long time since it's had a war on its, on, its, uh, on its shores. And we just think it's always going to be that way. You know, in 9-11, when the Twin Towers fell, that was just a small thing. It was only two buildings that came down. But look at the shockwave. Look at the stock market. Look at all the things. The whole country was affected by that one act. What would we do if all of New York was destroyed? You're saying, now you're being ridiculous. So what I'm saying is, the Bible tells us to heed the warnings while we have an opportunity to change the course and direction of our life. They could have escaped that accident that night if they'd only heeded the warnings that were there. Maybe they would have stopped the boat that night just shut down the engines, sat dead in the water until the morning where lookouts could keep an eye for icebergs. But they just plowed on, went on about their own life. In the last day, the Bible says people will be running to and fro. Knowledge shall be increased. Does that sound like our day? But is our day really any different than 1912 as they relished in the and in, in technology being developed, they'd already decided to build cars and things like that. Now we can, I was watching a show the other day, the commercial came on, you can have something, who puts it out? It sits on your end table, and you can speak to it like Cirrus. It's not a phone, it sits in your living room. And you can say, hey, Cirrus, or whatever the name of it is, uh, what's the capital of Montana? Oh, the capital is such and so. It, and it sits there waiting for you to speak to it. Technology is amazing. You know what? I like technology. And I sometimes wonder if I'm related to my brother. I love it. 
I think it's cool that I can talk to my watch. It'll talk back to me. But you know what? All the technology that we have in the world is no good without any power. But I still can operate when I have the power of God. The Titanic had 2,207 people on board, but they only had lifeboats that would accommodate 1,200. Were they prepared? 2,207 people and you only have lifeboats that can accommodate 1,200 people? They never thought it would sink. They complained because of all the regulation. We have to have that many lifeboats? A boat will never sink. That's crazy. This country's never going to fall. It's never going to happen. That's crazy. The designer of the Titanic recommended that they have 48 boats, but the owner only wanted 16. And the owner only had 16 instead of 48. He wanted the very minimum. Doesn't that sound like us? We do the very minimum? They said it was impractical for everybody to have a lifeboat or have lifeboats for everyone. But after the Titanic sank, guess what? They passed a law. It took the Titanic for them to realize we better be prepared for disasters like this in the future. I think God sent 9-11 to us. He allowed it to happen. He didn't cause it to happen to warn us that we better have a lifeboat. We better be, have our life hidden in Christ. We better make sure that we are connected to God. Sinking was the last thing that was on anybody's mind. How would you have felt that night if you'd have been on ship and heard that the Titanic was sinking? Do you know a lot of people didn't get into the lifeboats because they didn't believe it would ever sink? Oh, this is just a drill. This boat's never going to sink. It's just, I'm not going to get in. And they, they didn't get into the lifeboats because they didn't believe it was sinking until it was too late. But Amos tells us this in the fourth chapter, verse 12. Prepare to meet thy God. And then Jesus speaks in Luke, the 12th chapter, about the rich man that built barns. And he thought, now I can rest. I've accomplished all these things. And he says, you fool. Know you not this very night your life will be demanded of you? Why was he called the foolish man? He had prepared for his physical sustenance, but he had not prepared for his spiritual existence. He was not prepared for sudden death. I think of anything, if you could show that other picture of the Titanic when it went down, if we've got one. The sinking of the Titanic ought to teach us to heed God's warnings, and I think God's warning us tonight, or this morning. You need to get your, right, your life right with God. Your faith better be producing some works. If it's not producing any works, then you need to go back and see if your faith is alive. Maybe it needs a little CPR. Maybe that's why we have church, because here we have the ability for life support. The preaching of the word. What I'm doing this morning, what I'm trying to do is shock your heart. I'm trying to shock your faith. I'm trying, trying to get you to see that it's more than just uh, being in a place. Three things I've talked to you about. We need to trust God. Trust him with all of your heart. Don't lean on your understanding. Second all of thing, you need to serve others. I remember in school, and I'm, I'm going to close. I remember in school how we always had to have a note of paper and the teacher would ask us to do certain things. I'd like you to take a sheet of paper out. You don't have to do this, but I'm just saying it because that makes me feel better, like I'm a teacher. Write down the things that you can, that justify your faith, your faith that it's alive. Write down the evidence that you have that your faith is not dead. Now, you cannot put on the paper anything that is subjective. 
well, I feel like I'm, my faith is alive. That's subjective because you can't prove it. I want you to write down objective things, things that you can prove, prove that your faith is alive. Do you feed the sick? I'm going to say this, Brother Dave, because it's been on my mind. We in the food pantry constantly need help. And now we're, we have to go outside of our church. We're saying we're going to have to ask other churches because we just don't have the help to meet the, the volunteer help that we need. So I have to go to a Catholic church and ask them. And now we're going to go to different groups to say, can you help us feed the poor? Do you know how that makes us look? But yet again, it's scriptural. The Bible says, I was hungry and you fed me. That's, is that a work? That's one of the works that Jesus is referring to. So if you don't have any works on your sheet of paper to justify your faith so that you can have a good countenance and be like Abel, who was, his countenance was lifted, how about someone that's sick? Go visit them in the hospital. Well, that's a pastor's job. No, 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 no. Do you know how you feel when you do these things? You know what I'm saying. Do you know how good you feel when you go to someone and encourage them and you do the works that God has asked you to do? Do you know why you feel good? Because your countenance is changing because God is pleased. But when you don't do those things, your countenance falls. So maybe the reason that you feel rotten and you feel the church is not where it should be is because your countenance has fallen because God is not pleased with your works. We have to have preaching like this. Two thousand two hundred and seven people on board, seven hundred and five were saved. According to my math, there was room for 1,200 people in the lifeboats. They could have put 705, that's five, 495 people that could have been in the lifeboats that were not. It wouldn't have been, had to have been that many lost. They were designed to hold 1,200. How many people are going to miss the rapture of the church? that could have went. Two shall be in the field, one shall be taken, one shall be left. Two shall be grinding at the mill, one shall be taken, one shall be left. 50%? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Is the rapture going to happen? Many people don't believe it. There's some of, you know, if we really did believe the rapture was going to happen, we'd be living every day ready to go. And I, I feel it. I'm not going to say we always feel the same. There's some days that I, I feel like, what were, what, am I ready if the trumpet sounds right now? Am I ready? We all have ways to go, but the best way for us to get there is to start doing some work. No, you're saying, well, let's pray. That, it, come on, prayer's good. Prayer's really good. But prayer's useless without works. Faith is dead without works. So let's start working, which will increase our faith. Have you ever thought about that way? What about working to increase my faith? I'll tell you what, when I come home from work after I've talked for four or five hours, I feel awesome. Tired, but awesome. I think I've said all I need to say. I'm going to stop. But remember the Titanic. That tragedy never had to happen. Never had to happen. But because people were careless and didn't listen and felt confident with where they were at, 
You know, one of the things working at the hospital and hospice that I see, I see families that face crisis that weren't prepared for them. Dad died and no one knew that he was going to. He just had supper tonight. He's dead. He's gone. I, I can't say. The children say to me, I can't tell them things that I wanted to tell them anymore. It just happened. Tragedy oftentimes strikes unexpectedly. But what if, if they would have known, what would they have said to the one that they loved before they died? Why don't you say it today? Why don't you tell someone what's in your heart while you can, instead of waiting until they die? Let's stand together. I want you to close your eyes for a moment, and I don't mean to leave on a sad note. I want you to picture in your mind, turn on your HD memory. Look at the boat as it's going down and listen to the voices of those that are on it as it sinks. What do you hear? Do you hear the screams as children are separated from their parents, husbands from their wives? The desperation? No one never would have thought that it would have ever happened. They were just so happy. A few hours before, they were dancing in the ballroom. Everyone was so pleased with the life. This could never happen. They were unprepared. Today is the day of salvation. Do the works of God while you can. I know that God's speaking to you. Sometimes we wait for a tongues of interpretation, but I know God's speaking to somebody here today. And he's telling you, you know the reason that you're feeling the way that you're feeling? Is because you forgot what I told you to do. And you're trying to make up for it by doing things that I didn't ask you to do. But the only way that you'll ever be happy in Christ is by doing the works that Christ has commanded you to do. Let's pray a little bit. Jesus, for every person that's in this room today, every one of us has a purpose in life. Everyone has a calling. Everyone has a gift. A gift that's used to do the works that you've caused us to do or you want us to do. I pray right now in the name of Jesus that you would reveal... The gift. Remind Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and will continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please telephone our ministerial team at 262-965-5177 or email us at info at abundantlifechurch.org. At